I want to start out by talking about real estate as an asset class. It's actually the biggest and most important asset class. Uh, the value of real estate in the United States today is uh, of real estate owned by households directly is about $20 trillion, which makes it uh, comparable uh, or maybe a little bit bigger than the, than the stock market. Uh, and so uh, stocks owned directly by households are only uh, about $6 trillion. So for a typical household, the home is the, is the major source of wealth that they've accumulated. Uh, of course, other stocks are held by institutions on their behalf, but uh, in terms of direct ownership, homes are, are the main thing that people own. Um, so uh, there's also commercial real estate, which is smaller than owner-occupied homes, uh, but we own that indirectly too as a people through the stocks that we own and through the institutions we participate in. Uh, so it's very important, uh, and it has some important uh, financial uh, – there's a lot of financial institutions built around dealing with the fundamental problems of real estate. So I wanted to talk first about institutions uh, and then move to what I think is myself more interesting, which is the real estate boom. Uh, and, and the kind of uh, fluctuations we've seen in real estate over the years. So I'm going to start out by talking about commercial real estate and the kind of vehicles that uh, 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 we use to invest in commercial real estate. Uh, and then I want to talk about mortgages, which is the way that we finance uh, both commercial and uh, owner-occupied real estate. And then finally, I want to come to the uh, real estate boom that we are recently in. Uh, <coughs> so, uh, so uh, let me start by uh, uh, the way that the kind of um, institution that you probably know relatively little about for commercial real estate. Commercial real estate, that means real estate owned not by individual households, but by businesses. Okay, uh, And uh, the, the, the uh, institution I wanted to talk to you about first was called a DPP, uh, a direct participation program, which has been traditionally uh, the single most important form of holding of um, commercial real estate. So when you drive along and you see all these commercial buildings, you might wonder who owns them. Well, sometimes they're owned by corporations, but uh, I think the more important institution is the DPP, uh, which is um, uh, a, 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 <coughs> a financial vehicle that owns commercial real estate. On behalf of investors, uh, and so uh, the uh, most important DPP uh, is called a limited partnership uh, or LP. Uh, there's a very simple reason why real estate tends to be held in limited partnerships rather than corporations, and that reason is the corporate profits tax. Corporations are taxed on their profits, uh, and uh, DPPs are not. Uh, and so you want, if you are setting up an organization to hold real estate, you want to do it, if you can, as a DPP uh, because you don't want to pay those taxes. <laughs> and so uh, whenever possible, uh, a, a um, uh, ownership vehicle for commercial real estate will have the form of a DPP. Um, and a limited partner is, uh, is one kind of DPP, uh, and it has – it's not a corporation, so it's a partnership. Uh, the simplest kind of partnership would be if several of you got together and formed a business. Uh, 
And in a normal, in a simple partnership, uh, the partnership would not be taxed because it's you doing business just as partners. Uh, and so you are taxed, but not the partnership. But the, the problem with partnerships generally has been that they don't have limited liability. A corporation is an entity that could be sued uh, for uh, or could lose more money than it's worth, but the value of a corporation can never fall below zero because to the investors, because the investors are not liable for the mistakes of the corporation. If you buy stock in a company, the most you can lose is the money you put up. So that's called limited liability. But if you take part in a partnership, uh, you are individually liable for the debts of the corporation. And that's a problem with the partnership structure because you could join a partnership uh, and uh, the partnership does something awful and loses uh, more than you put into it, and they can come after you for those losses. There is something, however, called a limited partnership that has uh, two kinds of partners, a general partner and a limited partner, or and usually many limited partners. Uh, and so the general partner takes on the liability. Uh, the limited partners uh, don't have liability. So typically, uh, real estate is held in a limited partnership. It's limited because, uh, well, they want to put it in a limited partnership because they don't, it's not easy to sell other people on joining the partnership if they could get unlimited liability for doing so. So there is a general partner who takes on the liability, and the, uh, the limited partners, who are many, are, uh, are the in participants who do not share the liability. So the general partner is typically the organizer of the, of the partnership, someone who buys a you know, 50-story building downtown and then uh, well, arranges to buy it and gets partners, limited partners, to join in financing it. And so that's the arrangement. You have a general partner and limited partners. Uh, and um, you don't hear about uh, VPPs. I'm, I'm telling you something that you probably haven't heard a lot about. Uh, this is not commonly advertised or described, just like hedge funds are not commonly advertised and described, because it is thought that DPPs are uh, suitable only for wealthy and sophisticated investors. Uh, they're complicated, uh, so the general rule has been that um, only accredited investors uh, should participate in them. And so, uh, accredited, I mentioned this before, in the U.S. and in other countries as well, there are simi similar things. We define an, an accredited investor is someone who can participate in a DPP or other sophisticated programs. And the definition uh, is in Regulation D, which defines uh, an accredited investor. Uh, and uh, for many years now, uh, to be qualify as an accredited investor, you have to have one million dollars in wealth, or income in excess of two hundred thousand uh, dollars, or if you're married, three hundred thousand dollars for the couple. Uh, in uh, two thousand and I mentioned this before. In two thousand and six, the SEC proposed raising the uh, definition to make it harder to be an accredited investor, but they haven't done that yet. Uh, so uh, it remains at one million dollars to do it, but nonetheless, uh, DPPs don't advertise. So you see mutual fund advertisements everywhere. You don't see advertisements for partici participation in commercial real estate like this, because uh, the government would be on their backs if they did it. Since it's available only to accredited investors, you can't be advertising because everyone would see it. Uh, so. Um, that, uh, that's why uh, the financing of a lot of this real estate is something of a mystery, because they can't talk openly about it. Uh, so uh, these DPPs go back a long time, uh, but th there began to be complaints about them because people said, well, why is it that because I'm not an accredited investor, I can't get into real estate like these other people do? Why is it, you know? Why isn't there something offered to me that's like a, a DPP that's available to everyone? Or another way of putting it 
the government is effectively saying that unaccredited investors are free to invest in corporations that invest in real estate, and they're subject to the corporate profits tax. All right? Wealthy people have the choice of getting around the corporate profits tax. So, in a sense, the tax structure was regressive. It was saying, we're going to have lower taxes on rich people than on ordinary people. And that didn't seem fair at all. So, there was a complaint uh, aired about, about DPPs uh, in the late 1950s. Uh, and people said, let's change it. Let's make it so that everybody can have something like a DPP. So, Congress finally acted. Um, and uh, it was in the year 1960 that Congress defined a new investment vehicle called a real estate investment trust. And this is for everyone. Uh, a real estate investment trust is for small investors, although. Wealthy big investors can invest in it also, uh, and so um, the um, they they had to make a distinction. So these are called REITs, um, R E I T, uh, real estate investment trust. Congress had to make a distinction between these and corporations, and it's kind of a subtle distinction because there's a lot of corporations that own real estate. Like, for example, Walmart, all right? Walmart might want to, they pay corporate profits tax. So after, I don't know if Walmart, was it around in 1960? I don't know. Let's say it was, all right? Walmart, after the 1960 uh, Act of Congress, (coughs) would say, hey, we're a real estate investment trust. We own real estate, all (coughs) all these stores. But that's not what the intent of this bill was. They wanted REITs to be companies that just own real estate. Uh, and Walmart is primarily a retailer. Uh, okay, so they specified that uh, 75% of assets must be real estate and 75% of income must be real estate income. So that would, uh, that would be ruling out Walmart. Uh, and 95% of income must be paid out. They can't retain earnings. That limits it further. They're supposed to be like a pass-through vehicle. They, they're owning real estate on your behalf, so they shouldn't be retaining earnings. Uh, uh, also, they had to be long-term holders. Uh, it had to be less than 30% of um, income from sales uh, of properties less than four years. Less than, no more than 30% of their income from sale of properties had to be uh, from properties held less than four years. They, they didn't want flippers. They didn't want a company that, that's speculating in real estate. They want it to be a holder of real estate. So, real estate investment trusts became very important uh, in, uh, actually in three waves. Um, one, the first wave of REIT um, growth occurred in right after Congress passed the 1960 bill. So, uh, the, the first wave. Uh, was in the 1960s, and at that time, Congress had limit or governments, state governments, had limits on the interest that uh, savings banks could pay people on their accounts. So a lot of people switched from savings accounts uh, to to uh, REITs, and that's called disintermediation. Uh, an intermediary is a bank. Uh, and so when they pull out of banks, they were disintermediating and going from banks into REITs. Uh, although, in some sense, it wasn't really disintermediation because you could say a REIT is a different kind of intermediary between the individual and the investment. The second boom in REITs occurred after 1986. The Tax Reform Act of 1986 
made DPPs much less valuable to investors. And so a lot of wealthy people switched from DPPs to REITs. Before 1986, the tax law allowed use of DPPs as a uh, tax loss device, and people would invest in buildings solely for tax purposes because you could write off the depreciation on the building. Uh, and so people were cynically setting up DPPs as tax shelters only. And Congress said, finally, I think wisely, in 1986, that we don't want to create rules that encourage people to do a different sort of business just to evade taxes. So they, they, they made a, uh, they, they said that losses, that depreciation that in 1986, the Tax Reform Act of 1986, said that depreciation on uh, structures in DPPs can, uh, is called a passive loss and can be used to offset only passive income, which comes from um, uh, something like another DPP. And so it eliminated the tax adv advantage. So if they didn't have a, a particular tax advantage to DPPs, they went into, um, into REITs. And then the third REIT boom uh, was in the 1990s. Uh, and I think that this third REIT boom is different from the others because it didn't uh, arise from any government regulation change. It arose from uh, the beginnings of the, of the housing bubble, the real estate bubble that we're now in. So there just became a lot of enthusiasm for REITs. It's not just a bubble. It's also that REITs began to be more diversified. They, they, they had many different kinds of REITs for different kinds of real estate. It became a more uh, interesting and diverse uh, uh, asset class. Um, so, so that's what I wanted to say about commercial real estate. So the two principal ways that commercial, well, there's three ways. One is commercial real estate is held by corporations in the line of business, but after that it would be DPPs and REITs. <coughs> and we have democratized, now REITs are, are gr a rapidly growing force in, uh, in investing, and now uh, we have substantially democratized real estate holdings, so it's not exclusively DPPs uh, that are holding, or not primarily. We have a lot of REITs now. Okay, so then next topic. I wanted to talk about mortgages. Uh, mortgages are uh, debts secured by property as collateral. Uh, so that to, when you mortgage a property, that means that you offer the property as collateral for a loan, and that means that if you fail to pay on the loan. The uh, property is taken by the lender uh, to uh, satisfy your debts. It makes it possible for people to borrow who otherwise couldn't borrow. Uh, if, you, if you put a property up as collateral, then the lender knows that they can get the money uh, back from you. So the, uh, the critical thing is the loan-to-value ratio. Lenders, or LTV, a mortgage lender doesn't want to lend more than the property is worth because that would mean a loan-to-value ratio of over one. Uh, because then, if, if you fail to pay on the mortgage, uh, pay off the debt, the lender can seize the property and sell it. But if the loan-to-value ratio is, is greater than one, they won't be able to get all the money back, right? Um, Moreover, whenever they seize a property and try to sell it, it usually loses value anyway in the process. So for example, if there's a homeowner who you lent money to and the homeowner is defaulting on the mortgage, the homeowner might wreck the house. <laughs> uh, that happens all the time. Or they might steal things from it. Who knows? They're angry and they're living in this house. And th they can stall you for a year. You're trying to sell the house. They hire lawyers and sue you and you've got to hire lawyers so there's a lot of costs. So you want to have a loan-to-value ratio which is sufficiently low that you, the collateral will cover the value of the loan. Okay. Now, the history of mortgages uh, is that uh, they have generally, over time, gotten more um, easy on loan-to-value ratio. And 
uh, also on maturity. The maturity of a mortgage is the date when it's paid off. Okay? So if we go back to the 1920s, okay, uh, and I'll compare that with now, 1920s, the typical mortgage had a loan-to-value ratio of 60% uh, and a maturity of five years, often even less than that. Uh, and so um, they also had they were back then in the 20s, they were called balloon payment. Uh, what that means is uh, you would borrow $5,000 to buy a house, uh, and in five years, and every year along the way, you'd be paying interest on your mortgage, and then in five years, you had to come up with $5,000. Okay? So it was interest, interest, interest until the end, and then it was the $5,000. Of course, five years is too short uh, because most people live in a house for more than five years, uh, but the assumption was, well, when five years comes up, you refinance the mortgage, you get a new one. The banks weren't willing to lend more than five years because they didn't trust you. They thought things would change and whatever. Um, after 1929, real estate prices fell dramatically and uh, people became unemployed. The unemployment rate in the United States rose to 25%. Lots of people could not refi refinance their mortgages because they were unemployed. And you go to a bank and say, I want to borrow to refinance my mortgage, which is due now. They're asking me to pay $5,000. I don't have $5,000. But the bank would say, hey, you're unemployed. We can't give you a mortgage. Anyway, your loan-to-value ratio is getting pretty precarious because your house is now down 30% in value. Your loan-to-value ratio, if we were to give you $5,000, would be something like 90%. And they would say, no way are we going to do that. Our rule says we can't lend on a LTV of higher than 60%. So people would be turned down for the refinancing of their mortgage, and what happened? They would lose the house. Uh, and so that happened in huge numbers in the 1930s. Uh, the 1930s was the, uh, th the biggest housing crisis uh, in U.S. history. So <coughs> uh, you see what the problem was. The mortgages were too short. Uh, the loan-to-value ratio, well, it's not so much the loan. It was the maturity was short uh, and the balloon payment at the end that they changed. So uh, in uh, 1933, um, under the Roosevelt administration, uh, Congress created something called the Homeowners. I'm, I'm mentioning this; it it's actually relevant to right now. Homeowners Loan Corporation. Or HOLC. Uh, that was financed by the U.S. Congress, and it started offering indirectly, but it started offering mortgages to all these people who couldn't refinance. Okay, it did it through banks. They 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 gave the money to banks to make loans to people who were in trouble, uh, and they they created a very important change. They said five years is too short; it's got to be longer. They said. 15 years, okay, and get rid of this balloon payment thing at the end. That was a dumb idea. People can't pay that. If they're in any trouble, they can't come up with the whole value of the, of the loan uh, all at once. And so they, made it, they demanded that the mortgages be self-amortizing. This is what came in in 33. It was a very important change in mortgage finance. Self-amortizing means that you're not just paying the interest every year or every month. You're paying interest plus principal so that when the mortgage ends, you're just clear and free. You don't have to pay anything. Nothing comes at the end. And, and so the, the HOLC said, that's a lot more sensible. And so they demanded that that be done. And of course, banks would be reluctant to do it by themselves, but when the government's coming with a checkbook to write the money so that they can make the mortgage and guarantees it, the HOLC said, don't worry. If they don't pay, we'll, 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 we'll pay. So uh, the banks have said, of course we'll do that. And that created a major change 
in mortgage lending. This is especially relevant because, I don't know if you saw, maybe you did, <laughs> in the New York Times yesterday, Alan Blinder, who is a former vice chairman uh, of the Federal Reserve Board under Greenspan and is now a professor at Princeton, had an article saying, we need to bring back the HOLC now. Uh, and in fact, our own Senator Christopher Dodd has a bill uh, in Congress right now to bring back the HOLC, basically. Uh, he, wants, he has a, uh, a new name for it. Uh, uh, I think it's called Home Equity Protection Corporation. But almost the same idea. So ideas that were common, that were new in the 1930s, are being brought back. But we don't have to make the change. We're, um, uh, well, in a sense. The other thing that happened is in 1934, uh, Congress set up the Federal Housing Administration, FHA. And the FHA is specifically aimed at, at guaranteeing mortgages for low-income people. And it was a, a vision that Roosevelt had to bring more and more people into owning homes in this country. The FHA went further than the HOLC. And they de they uh, demanded that mortgages be 20 years. Also self-amortizing, okay. So this was maybe it's more of a paternalistic role of government that came in then. The government said the the private sector with these kinds of mortgages is not doing things right. It's not planning uh, for our future in the right way. Uh, and so they made the switch. It was really the government that made the switch from five-year mortgages to the long-term mortgages. Now, as today, the standard mortgage, which you would probably get when you buy your first house, is not 15 or 20. It's 30 years. Well, they just kept going up. The 30-year mortgage came in in the early 1950s, but it seems to have gotten stuck at 30 years. That's because, well, when you buy your first house, you might be 25. 30 years brings you to age 55. That's close enough to retirement. I guess mo most people think 30 years is long enough. But that's the way mortgages uh, go ever since. But we have to, w what we've seen recently, we, we had more government intervention back then in the mortgage industry. Since the 1990s, we've seen a proliferation of new kinds of mortgages that uh, especially are offered to low income people by certain lenders. Uh, so, um, We've had a growth in popularity of ARMS, which are adjustable rate mortgages. Adjustable rate mortgages have a long term. They might last for 30 years, but the interest rate is not fixed for the whole 30 years. So uh, a typical ARM is 2 and 28, which means that it has a low teaser rate for two years, uh, a teaser, they call it, uh, and then rates that go up after two years, and then uh, uh, tied to some other benchmark rate of interest, like the Treasury bill rate. Uh, and so uh, the, the problem is then that uh, these were sold to low-income people in many cases who didn't understand what they were getting. And that the after two years the interest rate would reset up, uh, so we would see resets after two years to a much higher level. And some of these people will discover that they can't afford them. Uh, and so we need, uh, and there's a lot of talk in Congress right now. Uh, we need to uh, uh, think about new regulations that protect individuals, much like the regulations that the HOLC. Uh, and the FHA made. But we have to do it again because the mortgage institutions uh, have deteriorated somewhat. There's a lot of anger about this. I know on Thursday, um, Angela Mozilla, who's uh, head of Countrywide, which is one of the biggest mortgage lenders to low-income people, made a lot of subprime loans, is being called before a House committee uh, to testify. And I'm sh uh, I, I want to try to watch it if possible. It's going to be interesting because there's a lot of anger about what's happened. Similar to the anger that we saw in the 1930s, uh, HOLC is no longer with us. It was actually um, set up as a temporary uh, uh, corporation by the government, but um, it's uh, the FHA is still with us. 
And you know, we just had an FHA Modernization Act. Congress is starting to propel that forward, so it'll be a bigger part of our. Uh, I wanted to say a little bit about the math of um, of uh, mortgages. The uh, uh, typical, the convent. I'm going to talk about the conventional 30-year mortgage, which has been a standard uh, in the United States uh, ever since the early 1950s. Uh, it's not a standard in most countries, actually. I think it was partly the New Deal legislation that made it very strong in the United States. In Canada, uh, the mortgages tend to be shorter term. It's something like what we had in the 30s, although they have other institutions that protect home buyers, so they don't see, they don't see the, uh, the, um, the turmoil that we saw in the 1930s. But a, a typical home, um, uh, we talk about a conventional 30-year mark. This is what most people get today. Uh, and that's except for subprime. <laughs> subprime borrowers seem to be the ones who are being really hit with new, new ideas. But if most people who are good borrowers, uh, who know what they're doing, want these, they want a conventional 30-year mortgage because it will fix a mortgage payment for the rest of the 30 years. And you have nothing to worry about. If you can afford the mortgage payment, uh, then, and, uh, th then you, you're all set. You, don't, you, you just pay it every month. And then you just stop paying at the end of 30 years. So uh, if they quote the rate on the mortgage, uh, call that R, uh, traditionally they you would be paid paying monthly. <coughs> so if you do it in monthly terms, your interest rate is R over 12, because there's 12 months in a year. Okay? How do they figure out what the mortgage payment is? Uh, well, the, the mortgage balance. Uh, mortgage balance is equal to the mortgage payment times, and now we just use the annuity formula, which is the formula that uh, we've learned uh, again and uh, we've seen it again and again. One all over the interest rate, which is r over 12, times 1 minus 1 uh, over um, 1 plus r over 12 to the 12t power, where t is the term uh, in years of the mortgage. Okay. Uh, so you, you uh, I should maybe make this the same. I have to get my brackets right. All right, this is just the annuity formula. Remember, uh, what what this equation merely says is that the present value of your remaining payments is always equal to the mortgage balance, uh, and so this is how they actually compute the payments. Because uh, you can take, if you want, if someone is borrowing, let's bring it up to today, they're borrowing $200,000. Well, the median price of a home today is just over $200,000 in the US. So if, if it's an 80% mortgage, you would be borrowing uh, $160,000. Okay, so you'd have uh, $160K here. Uh, and you know what this is. You, whatever the mortgage rate is quoted, you substitute it into this formula and you find out what this square bracket thing is. And then to get the monthly payment, you take the square bracketed thing and you divide by uh, the mortgage balance, and that's the monthly payment. That's how it's calculated. Um, so one peculiar property of this, incidentally, at, at every point of time, this thing holds. This is time to maturity. This is, uh, this is um, years to go. All right, and so 12t would be the number of months to go before it ends. So at every point of time, your mortgage balance is equal to your mortgage payment times that square bracketed thing, where t is the amount of time you have left. So suppose 
um, you are uh, moving after five years. You took out a 30-year mortgage, and you're moving after five years. When you first bought the house, they told you what the mortgage payment was, and they're fixing that forever, well, for 30 years. So when you, get, when you sell the house, what do they do? They go back to this formula. If you sold it after five years, then there's 25 years left. So 25 times 12 is the number of months left. They plug that into this formula. The mortgage payment is de was decided when you took out the mortgage, so that never changes. They then figure out what your mortgage balance is. Okay? And then the deal is that when you sell the house, they subtract, you've got to pay this. They subtract this from the purchase price of the house. And then you've got the cash to go and buy another house. But that's how it works. Okay? It's very important to understand that the mortgage balance is, um, is recomputed according to this formula every month. And they will send you a, a statement showing how your mortgage balance is falling. A peculiar property of this is that the mortgage balance falls slowly at first, and then it gradually picks up. It's just a property of this formula. When you first buy a house, most of your payment is going to interest. Um, your payment, your mortgage payment, is constant through time, but the fraction of it that goes to paying off principal versus interest changes through time, and it just changes as dictated by this formula. And that's because at the end, if suppose you're one month or two months away from the payoff of the mortgage, you don't have any balance left. And so the interest that you're paying is hardly any balance left, is very low. And so your payment is paying off principal uh, mostly. Whereas at the beginning, you, the, um, the, the, the mortgage balance is dropping only very slowly because you've got a lot of interest to pay and your mortgage payment is constant. So uh, th that's a funny property of, of conventional mortgages that the, the uh, mortgage balance declines very slowly at, fast and at first and then it falls rapidly when it comes to maturity. Okay. Um, Okay, so I wanted to um, I just mention uh, I wanted to mention a couple other institutions that are very important in real estate, and that is uh, Fannie and Freddie. Uh, in 1938, as part of the New Deal, uh, I'll, I'll just write Fannie Mae. Uh, 1938, under the Roosevelt administration, in order to further work on the problem in housing, which was still troubling them, they created a government institution called Federal National Mortgage Corporation. Uh, and uh, people on Wall Street found that difficult to say, Federal National Mortgage Corporation. So they nicknamed it Fannie Mae. Uh, it sounds like a woman's name. Uh, and so the idea was that they would help uh, advance the mortgage market by buying up mortgages from or mortgage originators uh, and therefore allowing them to make more mortgages. Okay. So they would buy mortgages from originators. What is an originator? An originator is a company that lends money to households. Okay. So they, they raise money and then they lend it out as mortgages to households and then they deal with the household by you know, having a local office and uh, telling people uh, what their balance is and, and calling them up if they're not paying and that sort of thing. Uh, well, they were, that's a, a servicer is someone who you might make a distinction between originator and servicer. The originator is the one who makes the loan. The servicer is someone who uh, manages the paying of the loan. And Congress thought that these people could be given more money to operate if they if someone would buy the mortgages from them. So Fannie Mae started doing that in 1938. Uh, and then the government created a second such uh, uh, institution called, and they, they gave it a boy's name, <laughs> some of the nickname, uh, boy's name uh, was Freddie Mac. Uh, so the government created competitors uh, and it privatized them so that both Fannie and Freddie became what are called GSEs. Uh, these are government-sponsored enterprises. Uh, 
technically, Fannie and Freddie are private companies. They're traded stocks. You can buy shares in Fannie and Freddie. They're not part of the government. But they were created by the government, and they are massive uh, supporters of the housing market. So the general market assumes, and also the government still regulates them. Uh, it, it tells how there's a, uh, a conforming loan limit that is a limit on how much Fannie and Freddie, uh, how big a mortgage they can make to one homeowner. Uh, it was just part of the new President Bush's plan to increase the conforming loan limits on Fannie and Freddie to allow them to lend at a higher price. So you can see the government is still involved in them. While they're technically private companies now, they are still thought to be related to the U.S. government. And so people are willing to lend to these organizations at low interest rates because they think there's an implicit government guarantee. There are critics of Fannie and Freddie who say the government guarantee doesn't sound right because why is the government guaranteeing a private company? On the other hand, the government says it's not guaranteeing them. But then nobody believes the government when they say that because people say, surely the U.S. government is not going to allow Fannie and Freddie to fail. This is very important suddenly now with the housing crisis. And if you just saw the news yesterday, Fannie Mae is uh, predicting, well, they are predicting that Fannie Mae is going to make huge losses uh, in their latest earnings statement. Uh, and so uh, it, it's still, they can make losses for a long time. Uh, before they're in trouble. So presumably there won't be a problem, but in principle there could be. And so that's uh, the kind of issue that we have now. Um, okay, I wanted to talk about the current boom, and I have so much to say about this, uh, but uh, uh, let me see if I can. Um, So, um, this is um, a plot that I created for the second edition of my book, uh, Irrational Exuberance, that shows the uh, real estate market in the United States since 1890. Uh, and what is really significant to I, I created this plot um, just a couple years ago. Well, in 2005. Uh, and uh, to my surprise, nobody had it before created a 100 year long home price index, uh, which seems surprising to me because uh, the long history of home prices seems like a relevant fact. Uh, we want to know what markets do. A lot of people have the impression that home prices only go up uh, and that they're a wonderful investment. So I, I thought we should try to find out what home prices have done. So I constructed a series. Of home price, that's the red line, um, and the red line is. Um, you can see how it's um, moved through history. It has suddenly shot up in the uh, in the latest years. This is since the late 1990s. So this um, this behavior recently, uh, I think, confirms that we are living in a very unusual time in the housing market, uh, and it's going to put a lot of stress on us. The uh, only other time we've seen a boom like this was right after World War II, and, and that's this shown by this line here. Uh, but that wasn't as big. So after World War II, uh, there were two things that I think contributed to the huge housing boom at that time. One of them was that the U.S. government had shut down the construction industry during the war, uh, and so uh, they didn't build any houses for uh, close to five years. So obviously we had a shortage of housing. The other thing was the soldiers came back from World War II, and they wanted families. <laughs> they started something you may have heard of called the baby boom, uh, and so the birth rate shot way up, uh, and so everyone wanted a home. And, and one bedroom wasn't good enough anymore. They wanted you don't want the baby in the same room with you, <laughs> right? You want to have two bedrooms. Um, you might even want two bathrooms. So. Uh, uh, the demand for housing went up. But the, the, but the current boom is different because there's nothing like that happening. Uh, and so uh, 
it's strange. Uh, the question is, what caused the current boom? I have some other data shown here. Uh, the green line is the, the uh, building costs. Uh, and uh, you can see that building costs since 1890, in real terms, everything is corrected for inflation. Building costs have gone up a little bit since 1890, but not a whole lot. And in fact, for the last, uh, this is the engineering news record building cost index. It's a, a, an index used by people in the construction industry. Uh, since around 1980, the building costs have been falling. Uh, that, I think, is partly because the biggest single component of building costs is labor. And uh, as you know, income inequality is getting worse. Uh, low income wages are not going up. Uh, and so uh, that component of housing has been declining in real terms. The other components are not doing much. Uh, so uh, the other thing I have down is population, or the population of the U.S. has been pretty steady, right? That pink line looks awfully steady. And I have interest rates. Now, a lot of people talk about interest rates. I was just reading Alan Greenspan's new book, The Age of Turbulence. I don't know if you saw this. It came out last year. And he said he didn't think there was a bubble. I don't know how he could think not think there was a bubble, but <laughs> he didn't see it. Uh, and his honest, he, he said, maybe froth in the real estate market, but not a bubble. Uh, and, but anyway, I was reading, well, why didn't he think there's a bubble? And he said, well, part of the reason is interest rates were coming down. And if interest rates are coming down, as you can see they are, that means the rate of discount is going down in the present value formula, so asset, asset prices should go up. Um, I guess that's plausible. It doesn't match up very well, though, because interest rates have been going down since 1980, and the, and the, the boom is very sudden. So it seems to me that Greenspan should have seen this bubble coming. Uh, uh, so what caused that? That's the. Um, uh, I wanted to show you one city <laughs> that uh, I, I actually do a, com a short comparison between a couple of cities, uh, Los Angeles and Milwaukee. Who, is there anyone here from Los Angeles? Oh, we've got a good number. What about Milwaukee? Nobody from Milwaukee. Um, I might be insulting Milwaukeeans <laughs> when I talk about this. Not really. Uh, Milwaukee, is there someone up there? Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, Milwaukeeans are um, uh, much more stable than this is actually praise for Los <laughs> for, for Milwaukeeans, not, <laughs> not uh, um, Milwaukeeans are much more stable than uh, Angelinos, I guess you call them, right? Los Angeles residents. Look what the housing, the blue line shows what home prices in real terms have done to in Los Angeles uh, uh, over the last 30 years. Will you compare Milwaukee? Look at that. Isn't that amazing? Milwaukee has been extremely steady over this period. Uh, so one theory is that, well, it's as people say, I'm going back to Los Angeles. The problem with Los Angeles is that they've had uh, unsteady employment. And unemployment, uh, if, if, they, if the economy is sagging, then the Los Angeles housing prices will respond. Well, you can see the pink line shows the employment in Los Angeles. Uh, and indeed, it did move around corresponding to the booms and busts in the Los Angeles market, but not so dramatically. And if you look at Milwaukee, the unemployment, the employment figures don't look that much different than Los Angeles. Uh, what's different? There's something about Los Angeles that's different from Milwaukee, and that is that in Los Angeles, there's just a history of volatile markets, uh, and um, I wanted to try and figure out why. Well, you know, Milwaukee. The reason we picked these two these two cities, we asked realtors. Uh, Carl Case, who's my colleague, he teaches at Wellesley College. Uh, back in 1988, when we started this study, we asked realtors around the country, what is the hottest market in the United States? Uh, and they said, oh, that's Los Angeles. Uh, or maybe Anaheim, uh, which is we're right outside. Um, and then we said, what's the, the, the deadest market in the United States? There wasn't as much agreement on that, but one of the names suggested was Milwaukee. Nothing has ever happened there in terms of real estate. Uh, now, I think that ultimately, um, you know, inter interestingly enough, Los Angeles had a real estate boom and bust in the 1880s. Uh, that's hard to believe. There was a huge boom in real estate prices in LA. In, it peaked in uh, 1886, and then a crash. Now, you might think, 
Uh, that's a long time ago, 1886. Um, isn't that when the cowboys and Indians were out there in the Old West and the covered wagons? And, uh, well, that's right, but there was a real estate boom uh, in Los Angeles. And so I went back and studied this boom rather extensively. Uh, by, uh, there's one book written about it. There's also the LA Times, which you can get now online with no problem from the period. You can read every day's newspaper. Uh, and it turns out, let's talk about what happened in LA in the 1880s. There, there a, a view arose that Los Angeles was just the most wonderful place on earth. The climate out there is beautiful. You especially feel that on a winter's day like today. <laughs> you might wish you were, in, uh, some of you, you might wish you were there. Uh, but it wasn't just California, because California was a huge state, right, with all kinds of, but mostly empty land. People somehow got the idea that Los Angeles is just this wonderful city, <laughs> and so they started bidding up real estate prices. Um, you can explain that to me, some of you <laughs> from Los Angeles. Um, it turned out to be kind of wrong because in the 1880s they started building so many houses in response to the demand that there was eventually a crash. But somehow people get this idea at some time. So we compared Los Angeles. We couldn't go back in a time machine and do questionnaire surveys in the 1880s, but we could do it in the 1980s. So uh, Case and I did identical questionnaires in Los Angeles and Milwaukee, uh, and these are median price expectations. In 1988, when there was a boom in California, but of course not in Milwaukee, the uh, average person in Los Angeles thought home prices would go up 10% a year for the next 10 years. That's the median, I'm sorry. 10% uh, a year is a pretty fast appreciation. If it goes on for 10 years, that means that the, um, let's see, it, it will double in seven years. So it'd be going up like two and a half fold. Um, that was quite a uh, nice expectation. If you compare that with Milwaukee, they thought only 4%, which is about the inflation rate. So there was something different between Los Angeles and Milwaukee. The Los Angeles people had extravagantly high expectations. We saw it again in 2003 uh, when uh, people in Los Angeles expected 8% appreciation every year. Uh, it's coming down now in 2006. They're gradually coming down as the, as the boom unwinds. But you notice Milwaukee is going up. I think what's happening is that we're becoming more national, and Milwaukeeans are starting to think more like Angelinos, uh, that it's one boom, and so they start to expect it to happen in Milwaukee. So Los Angeles and Milwaukee were tied in 2006 for their expectations. This is the boom. Uh, people had great fear of being left out of the real estate market. I think the boom was driven by fear. So in uh, 1988, we asked people in Los Angeles, uh, are you worried? Unless I buy now, I won't be able to afford a house in the future. We had 80% agreement with that in Los Angeles. So people were really worried. Uh, in Milwaukee, it, it was only 27%. Uh, you kind of wonder, how can it be that uh, people had such different views depending on which city they lived in? Well, I can kind of explain it. There's a couple of factors. One is, in 1988, home prices were rising rapidly in Los Angeles, not so in Milwaukee. So people were just extrapolating the price increase. But the other thing is that Los Angeles just has this sense of its own glamour uh, and excitement that, uh, you know, it is the home of movie stars. What, what, what city is more glamorous? Oh, Beverly Hills is part of Los Angeles, right? It's the most expensive city in the U.S. Uh, so this sense, this glamour thinking, along with uh, price increases, uh, caused Los Angeles to boom. <coughs> so it's the boomiest U.S. city. We asked people whether they had a perception of excitement uh, directly, and in Los Angeles in 1988, 54% uh, said yes, whereas in Milwaukee, only 21% said yes. Um, but as, you know, as the years go by, you notice that Milwaukee is starting to look more and more like Los Angeles. Uh, uh, Alan Greenspan, in his book, uh, says that he thinks housing markets are all local, and there is no. He says this firmly in his book. There is no national housing market. Uh, but in fact, it's becoming more national because Milwaukeeans no longer think that they are uh, some kind of outpost that's unrelated to the 
excitement of uh, glamour cities, they see it happening at home as well. So um, now I wanted to compare it with another question that I uh, people have this simple idea that there's a best investment. This is about the stock market, but I asked a number of uh, uh, this I've been doing since 1996. Do you agree with the following statement? The stock market is the best investment for long-term holders who can just buy and hold through the ups and downs of the market. Uh, I, I only started asking this in 1996 when the stock market boom was well underway, but already 69% of my respondents who were high-income investors uh, strongly agreed. That percent grew to the peak of the market in 1999. After the peak in 2000, it began to fall. So we see what happened is that when the markets, people are chasing past returns. When the stock market is going up, they think that they, they increasingly think that the stock market is just the best investment. Until when it starts falling, then they start retracting from that. Uh, oh, I didn't have uh, what happened. I lost it. Uh, the um, what is going on here? Oh. <laughs> um, okay. Where were we? So um, uh, we see the same thing in real estate, uh, and the percent who think it's the best investment is higher in Los Angeles than in Milwaukee, and since the peak of the bubble in 2003, it's been declining in Los Angeles, but surprisingly rising in Milwaukee, uh, and so they've almost well they pretty much converged in 2006. So the lesson is that I think that we have a glamour city phenomenon. That excitement about real estate prices, uh, centered in places like Los Angeles, but it's spreading and becoming more and more of a national phenomenon, and that's the bubble. Uh, part of this is the um, uh, uh, it's not loan to value ratio. This is the ratio of mortgage debt to personal consumption expenditure. Uh, over the boom period, <coughs> we've been seeing a gradual uptrend. Just as loan to value ratios were only 60 percent. In the 1920s, now they're up to 90 percent or 100 um, percent. We, we're much more willing to take risks on mortgages. People are also borrowing much more. So you can see that uh, in the early 1950s, mortgage debt was only something like 25 percent of uh, personal consumption expenditure, but now it's up to about 100 percent. So we're much more expansive in mortgage financing than we were. I put this chart up to just show the international aspect of home prices. Uh, the, here, the blue line is uh, the Case-Shiller Home Price Index for Greater Boston, uh, and the red line is the Halifax uh, Home Price Index for Greater London. We're talking UK now, and they're both deflated by uh, the Consumer Price Index, or in the case of the UK, the Retail Price Index, to give us a real home price. Uh, isn't it striking how similar London and Boston are? They both had dramatic booms. Uh, the, the London boom uh, of the late 1980s is really something. Look at that. It went up, peaked, suddenly turned around, came all the way back down. <laughs> I don't know what to. If, uh, and then it kind of uh, waffled around in London, and then it shot up even higher. And then look what's happened. This is the latest quarter. It's starting to fall rapidly. Um, so just uh, a couple months ago, London seemed to be soaring, and now suddenly there's this pessimistic atmosphere because we don't know what's going to happen in London. Look how it, it fell in um, 2004. There was this sharp drop, and most people thought that the housing boom was over, but then it went up again, uh, and so uh, to a new peak uh, in 2007. We have an international crisis. This is another couple of countries. I, I managed to find uh, price indexes for Norway and Netherlands going back to 1890 and compared that with the U.S. We're seeing a similar pattern in all three of these countries. These are the only countries that I've been able to find that have high quality uh, repeat sales price indexes going back 100 years. You can see that in, in, in all these countries, real estate prices didn't show much trend until recently, and now they all have real estate booms. So we have an international real estate boom. Why is that? Why would we have an international boom? Uh, I talk about this in the book you have, Irrational Exuberance, uh, and I, I let you read that and not uh, summarize it here, but a, a part of the reason, I think, is globalization is creating a global culture. 
and the excitement and enthusiasm that we once saw in isolated cities like Los Angeles uh, are spreading out and are seen more and more around the world. And it's tied in with our sense of rapid economic growth. We're living in an era of excited economic optimism. And so it's feeding into home prices uh, in the US, in Europe, in China, in Korea, in India, in uh, South Africa, uh, uh, Australia, New Zealand. Lots and lots of places have seen home price booms. And I think it's, it's, the, it's not anything unique to any one country that explains it. It's, it's the psychology. I think I wrote. This is um, uh, residential investment in the United States as a fraction of GDP. Uh, and I have it shown with uh, the, uh, uh, the vertical lines on this chart are recessions, indicate recessions. Uh, and this shows, okay, this is from 1948 to 2007. And every recession that we've had since 1948 is shown. For example, we had a recession that started here. Uh, I, th I believe that was 48. And then it ended in 49. And then we had another uh, recession that began in 1953, that's that line, and it ended in 54, uh, and so on. The most recent recession we've had is uh, 2001. It began and ended in the same year, 2001. We may be in a recession now. A lot of people are saying that. So I, I would be tempted to draw a new line here, uh, somewhere around here, maybe December of uh, 2007. Uh, but the National Bureau of Economic Research, who announces recession dates, hasn't announced yet whether there's a recession. So we'll probably find out in a few more months whether we're already in a recession. I suspect we are. Now the interesting thing is, the, the green line here is the expenditure on real estate uh, investment. What does that mean? There's three main components. One is building new houses. Another one is building new apartment buildings. That's commercial instead of, but it's still adding to the housing stock. And the third one is improvements of existing houses. People put, put new additions on, or they redo the kitchen and bathroom and whatever. Uh, so we add all that up, and that's residential investment. You can see that residential investment as a fraction of GDP has been very variable through history uh, of the United States since, uh, since World War II. Uh, and that it's had a strong relationship with recessions. Uh, so um, you can see what uh, residential investment has done recently. Uh, we had a huge peak in residential investment, uh, and the peak was uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I, I believe uh, 2006 uh, or, or thereabouts. Uh, and at the level of residential investment was the highest it has been since 1951, and that's over here. That's the only time since World War II that we've had a higher level of residential investment. Even 1951 was a very unusual year. Uh, I'll tell you why. Because uh, we were getting into the Korean War, and uh, the uh, people remembered that during World War II, the U.S. government shut down the housing market. They, they said no more new houses to be built. So everyone thought, uh-oh. In fact, they were talking about World War III. They were really scared. I, you don't remember how awful it looked because the U.S. was proposing to invade Korea, and then the Soviet Union and China were being very angry, and we thought we'd be in some war with communist China or some, uh, some awful war. People got really scared. Uh, but one thing they did is they this was the baby boom. They just got back from World War II. They didn't want another war. They wanted to live a normal life. They wanted to have kids. Uh, and then this terrible war was coming, they thought. Uh, and so they, they rushed and bought houses. So everyone was scrambling to get a house before they shut down the housing market. It turns out that it didn't turn into World War III. Uh, and uh, maybe they did shut down the housing market. They must have curtailed it. Uh, but it, it created that boom. But what's causing this boom here? It's almost as big as the 1951 boom. Well, the answer is uh, high prices, I believe. We had this huge bubble in home prices, and it pushed prices up 
to extraordinary levels. What does that do to builders? Well, builders can sell for a really high price, and so they start building a lot of houses. They will do it uh, as, as long as the home price is high relative to their construction costs. So we've seen a boom in building in the United States that is at a record level, uh, except for that one Korean War uh, blip. Uh, and so I think it's it's an ab it's a highly abnormal situation that we've been in, um, and uh, but now look how suddenly and sharply it's correcting downward. Why is it correcting downward? Well, that's because the housing market is now in decline, and and so when the housing market is in decline, the ability to sell houses drops dramatically. So builders were doing extremely well uh, until a couple of years ago. Their stock was soaring. Now, all of a sudden, they're in crisis. Uh, and, well, it's no surprise, this is what a, a housing bubble does. And I have, I think, uh, uh, maybe I'll, uh, you can see various signs. This is the growth rate of home prices. Actually, I should update this. This is now tipped negative. Uh, the peak, uh, this is the Case Shiller uh, 10 city index. Uh, housing permits have dropped way off. Uh, because, of course, they're not building homes anymore. This shows a, long, a strong seasonality and then a drop off uh, since uh, 2006. And here's my last slide. Uh, the National Association of Home Builders uh, surveys its membership to ask them, what is the traffic of home buyers? Uh, wh what they mean by that is, if you're a builder and you have this uh, you know, place where you show off your model homes, how many people are coming by to look at your model homes today? Uh, as po potential buyers. The blue line is the traffic of home buyers. You can see that it has reached the lowest level ever. It has dropped precipitously. And you note that the pink line, which shows the, uh, the rate of growth of home prices, the rate of growth of home prices has fallen just right along with the traffic of home buyers. So I think it's pretty clear what's happening. People saw the rising home prices, they thought they would rise forever. They were flocking in, trying to get into the homes housing market before it, out, it outpriced them. And now, suddenly, the word is out it's falling, so suddenly they don't want these homes. So the inventory of unsold homes is shot up, builders can't sell them, and uh, prices are falling. That's the situation where we'll talk more about this very interesting situation, because it, it ties in with so many other aspects of financial markets. <laughs>